Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We are working our way through a series that we have called FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions About Christianity. You know, all of us have questions that are asked to us by friends and family members about the nature of our faith. Um, And you know what? Truth be told, you and I have questions as well about the nature of our faith. And in this series, we have walked through what are some answers, some ways to think about these questions that many of us have and that are frequently asked. We've talked about questions, everything from, you know, is there really a God? Is the Bible reliable? Um, Is Christ the only way to salvation? That's what Bruce walked us through last week. We're going to get to questions um, about can anybody be certain of their salvation? Why do the innocent suffer? This is a a series that hopefully is relevant to you and the questions that you have and the questions that you receive as we reflect together on how we might have some answers to those things. And so uh, this week we're going to have another of those questions as we really have part two to Bruce's message last week and we're going to look at you know, what, what about those who have never heard about Christ? If Christ is the only way to salvation, what about those who have never heard? So we're going to look at that today. Um, before we do that, though, let me pray. Father, thanks for just all the things that are happening this week, the opportunities that we have to participate in what you're doing in the world around us, opportunities in Mexico and to contribute to the outreach to children there. Um, Father, wonderful, and the opportunity to reach out to our community and to share Christ and to welcome people into our facility. Father, we're so thankful for these things. We pray that you would bless them uh, in, a, in a deep and a powerful way. Father, we, we don't want to just have some programs. We don't want to just give some money. We want to, to partner with you in what you're doing, and we need you to work. And so we come to you, Father, and we trust you, and we ask you to work and to bless these opportunities. And Father, as somebody standing here today, I, I pray the same for this time and this message. I pray that you would take it and you would bless it Father, as we look at your word, that you would use it in all of our lives, mine included. And Father, that you would guide me to say the things that you want said, that we would be moved along this morning by the power of your spirit in our lives. We're thankful, Father, for the privilege of gathering here in Jesus' name, and we pray in his name. Amen. Well, we live in a very diverse world, don't we? I mean, the world we live in is very, very diverse. It's diverse in a physical way. It's diverse in its topography. You can go all the way from the bottom of the Dead Sea all the way to the top of Mount Everest. Uh, it's very diverse. It's very diverse in climate. There's actually a, a desert in South America that measures their annual rainfall in millimeters because it's so small. Meanwhile, there's mountaintops and rainforests in Hawaii that measure in 50 feet plus in certain years. It's, it's a very diverse world in which we live in a physical way. But the world we live in is diverse in more than just physical ways. The, the world in which we live is really diverse in a uh, financial way as well, isn't it? Um, there are nations on this planet that are very wealthy, the United States being one of them, but we're not the wealthiest. Uh, the nation of Gutter in the Middle East uh, actually has a, a GDP per capita of over $100,000. Meanwhile, the nation of Haiti, which is considered by many, many to be the poorest nation on the earth, has a GDP per capita of just about 700. That's quite a gap between them. We live in a world that is very diverse 
financially. And you know what, as, as people who live in a place like Norman in a country like America, uh, we, we struggle with this disparity in, in finances, don't we? And we, we hear about what is going on in the world, the implications of uh, the rich countries versus the poor countries, and we see that there are places on the earth where people don't have enough food to eat. We see that there are, are places on the earth where people don't have access to clean drinking water. We see places on the earth where people don't have access to things like education, things that we take for granted in our country are, are very much in need in other places of the earth. And when we become acquainted with that lack of, of physical things, this material poverty, when we become acquainted with it, we're, we're really vacillating between a couple of emotions as Americans. Maybe you can relate to this. I certainly can. At one level, we deal with some degree of, of shame. You know, how is it that I have so much while someone else has so little? We feel bad about the things that we have. But, but at the same time, we're also moved with a great sense of compassion. You know, wow, maybe God would use me to, to help share some of the blessing that he's given in my life with those in need. And this is what happens when we hear World Vision or Compassion International or organizations like that share with us about children in need around the world and Mexico missions and places like that. We have the opportunity to partner and to share some of what we have with those who are in need. We're moved by this compassion that we have to a passion to, to reach out to others. You know, Kimberly and I have a little boy that we helped sponsor with World Vision. And, and how we got involved with that was just a, a process of um, just being moved by a sense of compassion for how much that, that we had. And you know what, as, as we take those kinds of steps, and I, I know you guys, you guys have taken those kinds of steps too. As you take these steps to, to follow that compassion and to reach out and to help those in need, typically we do not feel unloving or arrogant as we do those things. We don't feel unloving or arrogant. As a matter of fact, we feel like it's a loving thing to do. We feel like it's a, a, a selfless thing to do for us to reach out and to help those in need because we're, we're very aware. We see the needs of this material kind of poverty. You see, we live in a world that is very diverse financially. But we also live in a world that is very diverse religiously. We live in a world that is very diverse religiously. A uh, 2012 census indicated that there's just over 7 billion people on the planet. Um, and of those 7 billion, uh, the, the largest percentage of them are people that fall under the banner of Christianity. Some 30% of the 7 billion, 2.1 billion to be exact, call out under the name of Christianity. This doesn't mean that they have a personal relationship with Christ. It just means that they're under the banner of Christianity in one of its forms or fashions. But there are a lot of other people in the world, right? That leaves some 5 billion. There's 23% Muslim and, and all the, you add all that together and there's 70% of the world's population that doesn't fall under the banner of Christianity. Some 5 billion people. Now, why does that matter for our conversation today? Well, it matters because last week, Bruce shared with us a message about how Jesus says that he is the only way for us to have a relationship with God. We, we saw this from John chapter 14 and verse 6 when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying nobody has a relationship with God through Islam or through Hinduism. 
Nobody is able to be made right with God through just following a set of moral codes or agendas or, or any other religion. There's only one way that people can have a relationship with God, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said this in John 14, 6. And this was an idea that was clearly understood by his followers because one of the very first sermons that the apostle Peter ever preached picked up on this idea. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says this, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, it's, it's an idea that comes clear in the New Testament that there is one way to have a relationship with God, and that is through Christ. Now, here's the question. How, how do we know that that's true? How do we know that, that it's true? Well, one way, way we can't say that it's true is because we have a majority, because there's Five billion people in the world today, 70% of the world today that would disagree with that statement. It would say that there is, is certainly more than one way for somebody to have a relationship with God, or if there is one way, it isn't yours. How do we know that, that Christ is the only way for us to have a relationship with God? Well, one way is because the Bible tells us so, but there's more than that. Because before there ever was a New Testament, people held to this belief that Christ was the way for us to relate to God, the way for people to be reconciled to God. And, and the reason why is because it was based in history. There is something very different about Jesus than every other religion. See, Jesus came to this earth and he lived a perfect life that was attested to by many witnesses. They didn't say Jesus was good or he was better than average. They said he was perfect, that he was holy. And you know who said that? His brothers. I mean, you have a brother or a sister. Anybody want to hazard out there that your brother or sister is perfect? No. You know why you don't say that? Because you live with them. You know that's not true. And yet Jesus' brothers make statements about the holiness of Jesus. He lived a, a perfect life. You know who else said he was perfect? People that went on a three-and-a-half-year camping trip with him. You ever been on a camping trip? Ever thought anybody you camped with was perfect? No. Why? Because you stayed with them. You were in camp with them. The same thing was true Jesus was with these folks, and yet th that close of access to him, they said, he's perfect, he's holy. Jesus had a different quality of his life than others, but it didn't stop there. Jesus' life ended with a death on the cross and ultimately a resurrection from the grave three days later. And you know what? The tomb was empty. And, and that empty tomb, that resurrected Jesus who appeared to to, to, to hundreds of people after his resurrection, became the fuel that moved the church forward, became the, the historical validity that there is something different about the person of Christ than every other religion. See, every other religion was founded by a person who wrote a book. And if all we've got is another religion and that was a person that wrote a book, we, we've got just one among many, but we've got something much different than that in Christianity. We've got a revelation of God in history, a resurrected Savior that adds incredible depth and weight behind his statement that he is God himself, that he is the only way by which we have a relationship with him. But see, we, we struggle with that a little bit. Because while we, we look at material poverty and the diversity 
on the earth. We look at that material poverty, and we, we don't feel unloving or arrogant in reaching out to those who are in need physically. Many times we do feel this feeling of being unloving or arrogant by reaching out and saying that people of the 5 billion, the 70%, that they might need Christ. We feel difficult. And why is that? Well, it's because we, we think about it a little bit wrong. We think that everybody just needs a meal, and every meal satisfies. But in reality, there is one meal that restores our soul. There is one way that we can have a relationship with God. And so because there is a real need, because Jesus is the one who who really can meet that need, it is not unloving, it is not arrogant for us to reach out and share that message with others. See, this week we're we're wrestling with the question of, of what about those who have never heard? And really what we're we're asking is the question. What does God think or feel or care about those five billion people in the world who are apart from him? We're going to look at that question a little more closely this morning. Now, before we do that, um, I want to just just make this one clarification. Um, You know, God uh, will save who God is going to save. God is not asking me to serve as a jury member on anybody else's salvation. God has not told me whose name is written in the book of life. Uh, God has not told you the names of individuals who are written in the book of life. Um, when we, we think about this issue of five billion, we, we automatically begin translating that into individuals and names and faces. And so I, I want us to, to, to wrestle and struggle through this today, but I want us to do it under the understanding that, that I don't know where anyone's eternity will be. But what I do know is this, the Bible does make this clear. That any hope that a person has to spend eternity with Christ will involve Christ now. And that, that we need Him. And that the response that God desires from humanity in light of that truth is faith in Christ alone. Now, with that said, I want us to spend a little bit of time with the, the rest of our time today talking about what does God think, what does God feel about the five billion. So we're going to look at a number of Scripture passages today, Um, and so I will be reading them. They'll be on the screen behind me, but feel free to to, to follow along and keep up if you want to, because we're going to see a lot of what God says about the five billion. First thing that we're going to see is this. God loves the five billion. God loves the five billion. We see this at the very beginning of the Bible. Um, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we have this creation of humanity that happens. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created you and I, God created the people of Iran. God created the people of the Middle East. God created the people of South America. He created all of us in his image. And he does that because there's a specialness to humanity. He created us in his image because he wants to live in relationship with us. And as God relates to anything, he relates to them in light of his character. And, and God's character is love. 1 John 4, 8 to 10 says this. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Um, There is a love that God has for us that is shown in the fact that he creates us in his image, but it is completed in the fact that he would go all the way to send his son to die for us. That's the depth of the love that he has. It's not just a a, a notion or a sentiment like somebody would write on a Hallmark card. This is real love that he's really willing to step to the table and really pay for with the blood of his son. Uh, We see this idea in John 3.16 when Jesus famously says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world. Uh, Romans 5.8 indicates more about this love that God has for us. God shows his love for us, it says, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God's love originates from him. It originates from his character. It compels him to reach out to those who are created in his image, not because we are good, not because we are great, not because we're special, not because we're Americans, not because we live in Norman, Oklahoma, but God is reaching out to us at his initiative because of his character and because his image is stamped within us and we were created to relate to him. God loves the world. 1 John 2.2 2 says this even more. It says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is a a sense where God is is reaching out to us and the death of Christ is a demonstration of God's love, not just for some holy huddle, but for the world. Christ's death was sufficient to pay the penalty of the entire world's sins. Not that everyone will take benefit from that, but it was fully sufficient to cover. This echoes the desire of God that we see in two different important passages in the New Testament, one of which is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 7. It says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I love that passage in this conversation because it talks and affirms the exclusivity of salvation, that it is found through one man, through the mediator, Jesus Christ, and what he's accomplished for us. But it also indicates the heart of God for all people. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says something similar. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God loves the five billion. God is is interested in us. He's interested in the people of the world. He wants to relate to us in a, a loving way. Well, that love that God has for us that we've seen demonstrated in these earlier verses um, also leads him to act. God pursues the five billion. Not only does God love them, but his love compels him to pursue the five billion. Uh, we saw this most very clearly in the, the life of the person Jesus Christ. Now, here's, here's what is um, so critical to understand about Jesus. Jesus says, I am the exact representation of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. In other words, Jesus came and lived his life in such a way that we would, by looking at him, understand what God was like. 
in, in relational terms, in flesh and blood terms, we could understand what God is like. And what did Jesus do while he was on the earth? Luke 19.10 says, the Son of Man, talking about Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. God loves the five billion, and he's pursuing them. That's why Jesus, in his limited amount of time on the earth, did not spend his time exclusively with the Jews, but he reached out to the Samaritans when he came in contact with them. He extended grace and mercy and healing to Gentile families that he came into contact with. Jesus is revealing the heart of God for the five billion by spending his time on the earth, reaching out to others regardless of their nationality. This was something that Jesus did, but it was something that has its roots in the, in, in throughout the Bible. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God initiates a, an initial relationship with one family through the family of Abram, we see this heart that God has for the five billion, the heart that he has for all the people. This is what it says in Genesis 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There was a desire to bless all of the families of the earth, and this plan was to do that through Abram. And that became a reality as the great, 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 great grandson of Abram was Jesus. And there was an opportunity for the people of the world to be blessed through this one family. It was God's heart for them from the beginning. We see this in the Old Testament and other places where you have the prophet Jonah who has this incredible water taxi um, to get to the, the nation of Nineveh and the city of Nineveh and to go into, and, and, to, and to preach repentance there and, and people repented of their sin. God had a heart for the people of Nineveh. What is God's feeling towards the five billion? He loves them and he's pursuing them. We see that from the Old Testament. We see that from the person of Christ. But, but how does God do it? How does God pursue people today? Well, one way that he does it is from the outside in. He does it from the world in which we live, giving a testimony about who he is. Uh, we see this in a very famous passage, probably the most critical passage on this topic in the Bible, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Um, in these verses, this is what it says. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What this, this passage is literally saying is that through the created order, God has put a testimony out there that is, is letting us know and letting every person know, regardless of whether you live in an English-speaking country or an Arabic-speaking country, whether you live in a developed country or in a developing country, 
whether you live in a country that has a church on every corner or whether you live in a country that has no church that's organized, whatever it is, there is testimony that God has given around people to let them know certain things about him, letting us know about his divine nature, that he is, is, is great and that he is, he is different from us, that he is holy, that he is above us. Um, and yet, in spite of the fact that God has given this testimony everywhere, people don't always respond appropriately to it. Rather than worshiping God as something other and different and greater than us, many times, many religions take God and reform him as some kind of a a human package or some kind of a created thing. And God says, because of that, judgment comes. See, God has, has placed within this world creation that draws us to understand something about himself. Second thing, God has drawn people and is pursuing them, not just through this testimony outside, but from something on the inside. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3 and verse 11, it says that God has put eternity into men's hearts. In other words, all of us are created with a sense of the fact that there is something greater than us. There is something, there's something big. There's something, something out there. That's why you know, 90% of the world believes in some kind of God. The other 10% have just rejected that part. But 90% of the 7 billion have a sense of God. Why? Because God has placed eternity within our hearts. He's placed a world around us that points us to him, but he's placed something on the inside of us that lets us know that he's real, makes us long to live in relationship with him. Now, one of the things that, that is also true from the inside of us is that we all have a sense that we're not perfect. Romans chapter 2 and verse 1 gives us this indication. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, you the judge, practice the very same things. In other words, whatever standard you come up with, you're going to break it, even if it's your own standard. You make your own rules and you break it. This, we, we know this, right? We come up with rules for our kids. Don't eat on the couch. Where do you eat? On the couch, right? Um, you say it's not good to lie. Don't lie. And then you're in a situation where lying looks advantageous. What do you do? Well, hopefully you don't lie all the time, but sometimes you probably do. If you're human, breathing, anybody out there? Yeah, there, there are things that we do. We, we violate even our own standards that are out there. And so, Just by virtue of living on the planet, we ought to have a sense that there's a God who is greater than us, and we ought to have a sense that we're not perfect and we fall short of a standard, even the low bar standard that we might set ourselves. It places us under a God but separated from him. Now, that is what the created world is designed to teach us by God. But in order for somebody to connect the dots and go all the way to faith in Christ, There needs to be somebody to add some commentary. There needs to be somebody to to fill in the gaps. And this is ultimately what the church is called to do. Jesus understood that. That's why in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus commissions his church to go out and to fill in the gaps, to let people know that this separation they know is real can only be bridged by Christ alone. Matthew 28, and Jesus came and said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 10, verses 12 to 21, echoes that thought. 
and says this, it says, For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask you, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. I I love that passage because it talks about God's desire to reach out to us, his heart towards people, but it also talks of his plan to use his people to go and to fill in the gaps and to tell people about Christ. Now, If there are five billion that God loves and he's pursuing and he's communicated certain things to the created order, but he wants us to fill in the gaps, we ought to be feeling a little stressed right now. Because if it's up to us, what if we fail? Um, Larry Larry, Larry Moody says this. He says, too often we think of God in Lilliputian terms. He is not an elderly gentleman looking down on earth from a celestial perch, biting his fingernails and saying, I hope the missionary makes it. I hope he gets there in time. That's not the way that God is. As a matter of fact, God is desiring to use us, his people, to take his message, but he is not bound by us. He can get his message there in many, many ways. And we see this in the Gospels. We see this in the book of Acts, and we see it also in our world today. Just some examples. In the book of Acts chapter 8, we have this man from Ethiopia, this Ethiopian eunuch, who has a a part of the Old Testament. He has a segment from the book of Isaiah, and he's reading it. And he's reading this about this sacrifice that was made for humanity, and he, he just has questions about it. What in the world does this thing mean? Well, just at that time, up walks Philip, and he says, can you tell me what this means? And Philip says, absolutely, I can tell you what that means. It means Jesus. And they, he shares with him, and he comes to Christ, and he's baptized in some water right there. God was pursuing the Ethiopian eunuch even before Philip ever got there. And the same thing happens today. I was talking to my, my friend Kurt, who served uh, the Lord for a number of years in China, in a, in a Muslim area of China, um, you know, an atheist country in a Muslim region. This is, this is pretty far away from the gospel, right? And some people had just been passing through town about four years ago when a friend of his named Nick, name changed to protect the, in, the innocent, Nick was living in, in this area of China, and somebody passing through town gave him a Bible four years earlier. That Bible sat on his shelf for a while. Eventually, Nick picks it up and begins reading it, but he can't make sense of what it means. Four years later, Kurt shows up and begins and meets this guy by chance in a city of over a million people, and he says, can you tell me what this means? Kurt says, yeah, let me tell you what it means. And he talks about Christ, and they, they shares the gospel with him, and, and, and Nick trusts Christ right there. Does God love the five billion? Is he pursuing the five billion? Absolutely. He's pursuing Nick. Um, we also see this in Acts chapter 10. There's this Gentile named Cornelius, and 
Cornelius uh, had this vision. Cornelius had some interest in God. He had a desire to, to relate to him. And so God gives Cornelius a vision. And the vision that God gives Cornelius is, hey, go get this guy named Peter and bring him here and let's talk. And meanwhile, God gives Peter a dream or a vision. And God tells Peter, hey, you need to go to this house, this guy named Cornelius. So Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and Peter fills in the gaps, and Cornelius ends up trusting Christ. And you know what? Some of those things like that are happening today. I was talking to to Jeff Bachman, one of Wildwood's missionaries working with the Jesus film. And he has a, a friend who's a taxi driver in the Middle East. He talks about his friend who was a taxi driver in the Middle East, a believer, um, felt the Lord was leading him to drive to a certain neighborhood late at night. So he drives his taxi to a certain neighborhood late at night. It was a, it was a, a hostile area to Christians, and he drives his taxi out to this neighborhood because he felt like that's where God wanted him to go. Well, he gets out there, and his taxi breaks down. He's thinking, great, Lord. Thanks for driving me out in the middle of no place and leaving me to die here. Well, just about that time, up walks this man, and this man says, what seems to be the problem? And he says, well, my, my car is broken down. My taxi is broken down. He says, well, you know, maybe I can help you fix it. And so the man looks at the car, and he says, you know what? There's a part that this taxi needs in order to be fixed, and guess what? I've got it back at my house. And it was really surprising that that would exist, right? Because it was kind of a rare part, and he would be able to find it. And so the guy's like, oh, thank you very much for helping me. And he says, but let me ask you, are you a Christian? Because the taxi driver had a cross hanging in his car. He says, I am. He says, well, here's the cost for me fixing your taxi. Can you tell me about Jesus? And the man said that he had had a, a dream that he was to walk this road at night looking for someone to help. And as he walked that road, he found this taxi, and that man ended up trusting Christ. Is God pursuing the five billion? Absolutely. He's pursuing the five billion. There's Saul of Tarsus, who was uh, walking along a road in a vision of, of Christ, and he's, his life is radically changed in Acts chapter 9. Is, is God doing those kinds of things today? Absolutely. I was talking to my friend Christy, who lived a number of years in the Middle East and in North Africa, ministering among Muslim people. And she talked about how uh, there, was, there was one um, young man who was there, and he, he had this dream. And, and in his dream at night, there was a, a rock that was coming down out of heaven with arms and legs saying, I am God, I am God, I am God. And so he came to one of her teammates and said, what, what is this? And he talked about how Jesus is the rock of our salvation, and the man trusted Christ. Is God pursuing the five billion? Yes, God is pursuing the five billion. He's doing so because he loves them. First Chronicles, or Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35 says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God is pursuing the five billion. Uh, Revelation chapter 5 gives us a picture of heaven. And what we see in this picture of heaven is, is very instructive because it lets us know that in heaven there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. There will be representatives of the five billion in heaven. And this is what it says. It says, And when he, he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Does God love the five billion? Is he pursuing them? Yes, he does. Now, how do we respond to this idea? How do we respond? What are, what are some of the, the ways that we respond? First thing we can do is we can love people. We can love people. God loves people. He loves them not just because they, they're church attenders. He loves them because they're created in his image. We have the opportunity to declare this truth as a reality in our lives as we, as we love the people that God places around us, as we, as we care for them, as we show compassion to them. We have the opportunity to love people. One response is that second response. We can pray for people. You know, if God is really pursuing people around the earth and he's, he's showing up in dreams and in, in the, the lives of, of certain Muslim people and he's causing taxis to break down at just the right spot at just the right time, then, then we ought to be going to that God in prayer and asking him to connect the dots in the lives of those we know and love and those that we don't know, yet love because they're created in the image of God. We can love people. We can pray for people. We can share Christ with people. You know, God wants to use you and me to fill in those gaps. We have the opportunity and the privilege to fill in those gaps for folks, to help go from just that there's a God that we're separated from to this is how we can connect with that God that we're separated from. And lastly, I would say this. Don't reject, don't reject the faith simply because you feel guilty about having heard about it. You know what, when we go back to the material poverty that I talked about earlier, I have not stopped eating because there are people in the world who are hungry. Yet sometimes when it comes to this truth about how there are spiritually hungry people, sometimes people make the decision, you know what, if that's the way it is, I'm just going to stop eating spiritually. I can't, I can't trust Christ because there's people in the world that don't know him. The, the, the opposite is true. You, you've been presented with a meal, an eternal meal to fill your soul. Trust Christ yourself. And then be used of him to share this message of hope with a world that is greatly in need. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And as they come, and, and we're, going to, we're going to conclude by singing a song, I want to just, just say this. Um, we're going to conclude by, by singing some words that are written in Revelation chapter 5. You know, earlier we, we read the first part of Revelation 5 that talked about how there are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will be in heaven. One of the things that is this beautiful is that as that passage continues, it gives the words to a worship song that is sung in heaven. This is what it says. It says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. We have the incredible privilege of singing a worship song right now in English to a tune that we can relate to and understand. But know this, we're going to sing this song again where those who don't speak English will outnumber us. Those who look different than most of us in this room will outnumber us. And we'll be able to sing and praise God as Revelation 5 indicates. So stand and join us. We close this time singing worship.